Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. And I'm the left hemisphere, Levi. (laughs) Pacific Rim is the movie we watch this week. Levi, in 60 seconds or less, give us a synopsis of Pacific Rim. Giant monsters, kaiju, begin coming from an interdimensional rift deep in the Pacific Ocean. And the world builds giant robots, Jaegers, to stop them. Raleigh and his co-pilot brother lose a fight, and the death of his brother leaves Raleigh unable to pilot a Jaeger. Five years later, as kaijus continue to get bigger, the government gives the Jaeger program an ultimatum that it has eight months before funding runs out, and the world turns to a defensive wall program that proves quick quickly proves inadequate. Marshal Stacker Pentecost gathers the four remaining Jaegers to make a last-ditch attempt to close the rift with a thermonuclear device. Two scientists work to solve the issue of opening the rift to destroy it, while a new co-pilot is chosen for Raleigh. Makomori is chosen as the most compatible, and after some emotional exposition, the four Jaegers take to Hong Kong to defend against the first two kaiju attack. Following the attack, only two Jaegers remain, and the scientists drift with a kaiju brain to determine that the only way to get a bomb into the rift is by approaching the rift with a kaiju. Three kaiju appear to defend the rift, and in the ensuing brawl, Pentecost and his co-pilot detonate the new nuclear device to kill the kaiju while Raleigh and Mako drag a kaiju body into the rift to detonate their own nuclear core closing the gate they manage to eject and have a heroic hug out after saving the world bro hug yeah it's (laughs) you know that was something that I always assumed there were romantic undertones and then yeah after listening to the commentary Guillermo del Toro does not acknowledge the romance that is brewing between Charlie Henneman and uh, I don't know the actress's name. Off the top of my I believe head. it's Rinko Charlie. Kikuchi. I believe it's Charlie Hunnam. I don't know. It's not Henneman. Charlie Hunnam. He wishes he was American because he keeps well, playing one on TV. But there's that moment in the movie <laughs> where he says, I, "My timing's always bad." It makes it seem like he wanted to tell her that he has feelings for her. Not to mention, she really likes to check out his packs. <laughs> through a little eye hole at her door. I know, it's weird, but it doesn't the romance never really appear, it never we never see the fruition in the movie. And that's good because I was getting that chemistry problem that I was having with Hellboy and uh Liz. I was getting a similar problem with this and that I'm like there's no chemistry here. It's just not and I think that's the largest flaw of the movie is that there's really weird chemistry and a lot of it's mm-hmm. absent hmm. everybody when you take their singular moments does well i think idris elba crushes it when he's just brooding yeah by himself when he's talking and nobody has to respond charlie day rocks it just being a goofy scientist uh mako has some great moments like when she slips in the drift and we get to we go back into her history, but the yeah. minute people start interacting, it just yeah never I, takes off for some reason. Well, I mean, this is the problem that I think we tr- we talked about a little bit last week in Hellboy 2 is that I think Guillermo del Toro, if he has a weakness, it is in his direction of acting. And I, th- I feel like there's good writing. 
Um, I feel like there's a few plot holes in this movie, but I think that it's, I feel like this movie, um, in very much the same way that very much the same attitude that Guillermo del Toro had when he made Blade two, it's the type of movie where if it's too loud, you're too old and it's really a cartoon. I mean, this movie is so cartoonish in so many ways. So I'm willing to forgive some of the plot holes, but the acting, the direction of acting in this movie is a little horrendous, particularly with Charlie Hunnam. The guy <laughs> is awful at acting. Have you watched Sons of Anarchy? Is he? I haven't. Generally, I just, I've never seen him, from what little of that show I've watched, I've never really just dug him as a character Yeah. Well, he's going to be on Crimson, he's going to be in Crimson Peak next week. Oh, so. he shows up in that? Yeah. Oh, nice. All right, so well, we'll he gets another shot. Yeah. Um, and the other thing about this movie is that I feel like it follows very much the same trajectory that Hellboy 2 followed in that the first hour of the film is a little... There, it's stylized and it's interesting and it's fun, but it's a little too much, I think, uh, and maybe a little too meandering. And then there's a big epic fight, and basically from the Hong Kong fight on, I'm like on board with this movie because that that's kind of when you figure out what the movie is. Like that that's when you're like, oh, this movie is about incredible, awesome, giant fight sequences, and there's a little bit of drama behind it, but frankly, it doesn't really change the way that people fight or anything, um, and it makes up for it for me. From the Hong Kong fight on, I'm like completely on board with this movie. I was just a little wary of it on this second watch going up to that. But I think it's also very interesting because uh, we've talked about this before as well. Like I, I think feel like good movies, like they're good on the first watch. And then on subsequent watches, you get more and more out of them. I feel like this film kind of slips because on my first watch of Pacific Rim, I loved it. I just, I just I thought it was phenomenal. And on this watch, it was just a little bit less than phenomenal because I feel like there are big reveals that you get in the first watch that, you, that you're you not going to get in subsequent watches. Yeah, the, the adrenaline of the first viewing of mm-hmm. just finally fulfilling that monster robot fight that, I mean, <laughs> when was the last time that we had something of this scale? as a as a movie that was especially yeah. even remotely good um i think it gets a lot of i certainly give it a lot i'm very forgiving because it fills that gap and i just if i had been 13 this movie would be my this would be independent this would fill the gap that independence day filled oh, when i was that age because that nice. was a movie i could watch back to back when i was 13 which is a yeah. weird thing to do as a kid why would you immediately go back to a movie <laughs> for um, me it was true lies but that was uh for a little bit of a different reason i think <laughs> so, true lies is a little edgier than independence day Your vhs worn out in some very particular places <laughs> <laughs> who knows ladies and gentlemen who knows but um Going back, I it, I, th- I I don't think like this movie is completely out of. I don't think it's completely has its own space. I feel like the first Transformers movie had a lot of this fun in it, um, and I feel like the Transformers you know franchise gets a lot of flack and rightfully so. But I feel like the first Transformers movie was kind of this rip roaring fun adventure that people liked, 
And then when Transformers 2 and Transformers 3 came out, everybody started hating on Transformers 1, probably because it led to those two movies. But <laughs> I remember when Transformers 1 came out, me and my friends were like, yeah, dude, that movie was actually pretty fucking fun. And this is it filled a similar gap, I think. Um, this just has that Guillermo del Toro bent on it, which makes it more interesting. And it's not based on a prior franchise or, uh, or you know, comic book or story or toy line so it's got its own mythos that it that it lives in and that's where del toro thrives is creating his own mythos um it definitely draws on popular culture but it, there's something to be said about a, a studio giving guillermo del toro 200 million dollars to make an original action film yeah and the it it's hitting a lot of those really great sci-fi mm-hmm. sensations the I was watching with the DVD commentary and uh, Guillermo del Toro called it gothic tech. The idea that this is mm. technology that's worn, things are riveted, a lot of it's inspired. Gypsy Danger, the, that name, the gypsy part, um, I was trying to figure out why it was spelled with an I and not a Y. And mm. it's because it's based on the Gypsy de Havilland as a plane, an old World War One plane. Um and so trying to take some of that past inspiration and use it to influence your design now. And I think it comes across well. The The pieces really do look, you know, all the metal paint, everything that was nice and shiny is kind of chipped at the edges. And they keep yeah. it, they don't keep it too clean, which is what makes Star Wars so much fun is everything looks well used. Sci-fi yeah. typically falls apart when things get too shiny because it... It feels too fresh. I agree. Yeah, especially in the first when in the first Jaeger fight, um, when how do you say the guy's name? Raleigh. I you know like, all I can hear is the Australian guy saying Raleigh. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I, I end think up it's saying Raleigh. it. It's spelled. I guess it's spelled like Raleigh Durham. Yeah. So yeah, Raleigh. Him and his brother um, are in that original fight, and they have the white Jaeger suits, and they're all like chipped up and stuff. I'm like, that's pretty cool. It does. It reminded me of Star Wars and that it was a lived-in universe. I'm trying to see. So, Gypsy was spelled. I'm on the. I'm on the Pacific Rim wiki, and Gypsy spelled with a Y. Well, then they're mistaken. Hmm. Really? On the wiki? I swear, I looked this up yesterday. We can do Eric and Levi do Wikipedia while we continue to address. Um, this isn't Wikipedia, sir. This is Pacific Rim. <laughs> oh, wiki. this is the Pacific Rim. Is this? Does it say last edited by Guillermo del Toro? Because no. I kind of could see him getting deep into his own. This universe mm. is so much fun. I want to see what happened in Seattle. They actively bring up <laughs> I don't. when Seattle fell, and I yeah. want to see that fight. I know that Romeo Blue, one of the first things I did after this movie was look up what was Seattle's Defender Jaeger. Mm-hmm. And I just, that's what. It was Romeo Blue? Yeah. Did, did they say what mech, uh, what mock it was? Um, I don't remember which mark he was, but he's got a giant fin in the front. It looks totally stupid, um, but cool at the same. It looks. Let me. It looks what? like it doesn't do anything, but what? It's a fin on the front. Yeah, right. And it goes up past his face. So it's got like a hole on his chest. Yeah, kind of like a keel. Yeah, it's Seattle, and we've got boats. Yeah, this well, is it's a boat yeah. Jaeger. I don't know. Romeo uh, Blue. <laughs> It's a Mark One, dude. Yeah, old school. Mark One American Jaeger. That's a, that's a. So this uh, is, I mean, this is what I love. 
I think that Pacific Rim could benefit the same as Hellboy. I think Guillermo mm-hmm. del Toro creates these universes. And in the case of Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, they start and end very smoothly. And you don't necessarily need to see beyond it. But with things like Hellboy and especially Pacific Rim, he has created mm-hmm. a universe and you just want to see more of it. And it would be great to have characters that spanned a little bit longer. There's so much psychology in the design of the Jaegers and how they're piloted that to get a depth of character to then explore, that is wildly difficult to do in two hours. Yeah, it is. And and that's what he does best. He's a world builder. It's it's kind of wonderful. Um yeah, so like I'm just I'm I'm just cruising the just, Romeo Blue on the, <laughs> on the Pacific Rim Wiki right now, and you're right. Now I just want to learn more about this stuff. It's entrancing. I like like Romeo Blue. Apparently, uh, he ooh he's got a Gatling chest. Interesting, but he, he like the the kaiju at Anchorage evaded him, and that's why they had to deploy deploy Gypsy Danger. So there you go. Right? See, it it fits in. It wants to... And I know that there's a comic. I've been meaning to dig it up just to mm-hmm. see how it... Because I think that's a format that it could be really good in. I don't know. This stuff hits me in just the right... Like, I've watched <laughs> Neon... Oh, now I'm trying to remember how to pronounce this damn title. The Neon Genesis Evangelion. It was oh, a, yeah. a Japanese anime that was... Mm-hmm. Very similar, and it had some things that I liked more, and it had some things that got weird, which happens with anime. And mm-hmm. you kind of just you watch enough at some point, you just like, okay, whatever, it's weird, you live with it. Holy cow! But they couldn't like for those robots, they couldn't go very far because the power source was they were literally like plugged in, mm-hmm. and they were much more agile. But that restriction I thought was a lot of fun. So this is a nice take on it because the i like the interact the water i mean we've yeah. talked about how much guillermo del toro loves water and this one he doesn't want to get out of the pool this <laughs> whole movie with the exception of hong kong we've got to dance it all the way to the end the final fight is underwater which is i can't imagine how the physics yeah. actually work in that scenario, i know but <laughs> i want to talk about that because he does up the ante on that i want to get to that final spot dude this is so interesting though on this wiki i know i'm just so, killing time here so that you can really take a deep dive yeah you got mark one you got brawler yukon coyote tango horizon brave romeo blue tacit ronin and cherno alpha of course in the novelization you also have tango tasmania <laughs> Tango Tas- <laughs> my favorite of all of these oh there's two really good ones oh holy crap the mark threes have great names Gypsy Danger, of course. Matador Fury, which is a Mexican Jaeger, which I love. So you know that Guillermo del Toro wants to do one about Matador Fury. Absolutely. Um, Matador Fury, uh, Vulcan Spectre, and Chrome Brutus. Nice. Chrome Brutus sounds cool. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things about this that are really interesting. Chrome Brutus is a, the Canadian Jaeger. Because <laughs> they're really known thing. for their Shakespearean references in Canada. <laughs> Two Brute. 
That's actually what they say every time they pull their final move, which is they actually shove a giant bottle of maple syrup down the throat of a kaiju and do that. They pump it. So pump full of maple syrup. Perfect. Yeah. They they, they do the Mountie. That's called the Mountie move. Um, Ooh, there's a Diablo Interceptor. This is a Chilean Jaeger. I'm just going to read all these names. This podcast has now officially become Eric Reads a Wiki. Okay, so Mark 1, Brawler Yukon, Coyote Tango, Horizon Brave, Romeo Blue, Tacit Road, and Cherno Alpha. We all know Cherno Alpha. Yeah, that's the Mark Russians. 2, Diablo Intercepts, Solar Prophet, Puma Real, and Eden Assassin. Also very good names. Mark 3, Gypsy Danger, Matador Fury, Shaolin Rogue, Vulcan Spectre, and Chrome Brutus. Mark Four Crimson Typhoon, which we all know and love. Hydra Corinthian. That one's very. Uh, is that like the Greek one? Um, Nova Hyperion Echo Saber and Mammoth Apostle. <laughs> I like that one a lot. And then, of course, we all know Mark Five Striker Eureka. Is Mammoth Apostle is that Vatican City's Jaeger? <laughs> Mammoth Apostle. Is a Mark IV Jaeger stationed at the Los Angeles Shattered Dome until its closure in 2024. So I'm guessing it's American. Yeah, but those Shattered Domes are also half cathedral in design. Yeah. I love that they're... Like, that's the whole thing about the world building, too. Like, the Shattered Dome... um, Oh, man. I gotta see what Hydra Corinthian is. (laughs) Hydra Corinthian, also United States of America. Um... It's it's just an interesting story because it starts off it's a familiar tale of we get attacked by aliens and then as a as a species we unite to defeat them. Um but it's all it's all about the question of how we actually do that and I love that the human race decides to do that by punching them in the face <laughs> as many times as possible. And then how swiftly we commercialize the entire thing. The first yeah. 10 minutes of this movie is some of the best storytelling just in terms of the <laughs> the way that they use kind of just a it looks a little found footagey they hit the high points yeah uh, it's similar to and maybe this is what I, I want this is where i want to see kind of guillermo del toro and edgar wright kind of unite where mm. guillermo del toro loves to tell these stories in advance how can he do his world building up front that then kind of becomes the reality. Yeah. I think he struggles yeah. with bookending in some instances. I think in many, yeah. he's, I think when he's in his element, Pan's Labyrinth, Devil's Backbone, he's able to do it. But when he really gets into kind of his fetishes, <laughs> I think yeah. he, he gets a little bit blinded by, I mean, he turns into a kid like we do reading these wikis and trying to be like, what would I name mine? <laughs> yeah, it's, well... Puma Real. That sounds Puma. sassy. <laughs> Puma Real, baby. Um, well, it's interesting because you look at kind of the original stories or the original worlds of Guillermo del Toro, and it's a little bit hard to decipher this one because while he is a writer on the movie, the story was by somebody else, Travis... Beecham, I believe, who also wrote the uh, Clash of the Titans remake. Um, but very much a Guillermo del Toro world. So you look at kind of his worlds and you have like Kronos, you have Devil's Backbone, you have Pan's Labyrinth, 
And then Pacific Rim kind of falls into this middle ground uh, that's similar to Mimic in that the story wasn't by him, but he kind of created the world around it. And I feel like you could really see him kind of as the influence of these big superhero movies that he had worked on. You know, three of the last four movies that he worked on before he made Pacific Rim were comic book movies. So really taking kind of this comic book world that he was familiar with and that he had lived in for a while and then really creating it and making it his own. Uh, I think it's interesting to look at it from that perspective where he was probably like, I like all this stuff. I like Hellboy. I like Blade. But I'd rather just kind of go out and make something of my own that's that's fun and big and exciting. And um, you say comic book, but in reality, yeah. he's drawn from film. I mean, the mm-hmm. kaiju films of Japan mm-hmm. are such a – and I think it shows up in some of his world building how he gears some things to sort of support his his style of filmmaking like the Jaegers having two pilots and in a lot of the interviews and stuff, he talks about how important it was. That was his first demand was two pilots because you need Mm. people talking to each other. And then they sideload the pilots and they give it the left hemisphere, right hemisphere reasoning. But the real logic is so that they can look over at each other and you can get that interaction. And as a visual storyteller, that's an absolute must because the Avengers movies, the Captain America Civil War, they're all good, but it does feel weird when people are talking to each other through earpieces. It feels disjointed. <laughs> the funny thing, if you look at the original Avengers movie... There are no earpieces. There are no earpieces. They're just like talking to themselves. They give you the side of Cap's head to say, hey, look, we heard you. We put an yeah. earpiece. We got him an extra big earpiece. Just so that you could see it's in there. I mean, Tony Stark could easily make an earpiece that that would go inside your ear and be, you know, invisible. I know, but it's great to watch people bitch and watch studios bend over backwards to to meet their the the weird demands. They don't meet the the good demands of like how long it took them to make Deadpool when people were things like that. They but earpieces. Woo, we got right on that. We got to get earpieces in there. Um. Well, I mean, let's and let's talk about the this world a little bit because I I agree. I feel I feel like the 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 drift. I don't really know. Like, I, I just had some issues with the drift. Like, there's no real reason for it. <laughs> like, you can't control a giant thing with your mind. Uh, if 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 it's by I don't really understand there's the logic isn't quite there so it it forces us to make a logical jump right off the bat in order to get these people into the Jaeger together um I mean I understand that it's it's much better to have somebody who can just kind of fight and be in tune with the giant machine uh it's better visually and it's a lot more interesting because it's something we've never seen before as opposed to somebody just sitting in a cockpit with two joysticks you know um but the but the bridge, I guess it it allows it affords us the opportunity to go into people's pasts a little bit, um, but it also seems like a very fragile and strange way to do things, especially in this in this age of drones when you could just have the people like sitting in a cubicle somewhere commanding the the Jaegers. Yeah, they try and make the argument for scale, and mm-hmm. I think part of the reason that the drift is a notion is that it 
it does you're like you said it's fragile but i think it's intended to be that way because then it forces uh emotional question between your two pilots because they have to trust each other essentially and that's and if you some of the commentary stuff is really great i highly recommend for everybody that's watching this Guillermo del Toro stuff, watch commentaries where it's just him talking about the movie. It's almost as fascinating as the movies themselves because he really, he's a good world world builder. He thinks through this stuff and he's very, you can tell how passionate he is about his own creations. And he keeps using the word trust to kind of explain the drift and why it exists and how it works and then that's why you have scenes, you know, I blew through it in the synopsis, but the emotional fallout that kind of occurs in the middle, it's between, you know, uh, Raleigh and the Australian guy. There's no trust. So now you're sort of looking at within the Jaegers, they have to trust each other. You get a father and a son, you get two brothers, you get triplets, you get two Russians who they actively don't tell you, are they lovers or they brother and sister? sister. They met at a rave in 1998. (laughs) Maybe they just dropped some acid together and drifted without any equipment. Yeah. The two scientists, same thing. There's all of these Mm -hmm. double relationships that kind of work together but then you see kind of it's supposed to be a comparison, a contrast to those that don't. The trouble that Pentecost has with Mako piloting. So he never pilots with her. Um, yeah. but he ends up piloting the adjacent Jaeger because there is that conflict. They could never drift together. But he doesn't have a a trust issue with the Australian kid because he gets the kid. There's no – the trust exists because he's got it all figured out. And so, you know, it's built in because you need that something emotionally to kind of bounce off of. And it yeah, works and it lets you get a little yeah, it lets you get it a little deeper with the characters. But I I, th- I do feel like this kind of opens up. I'm trying not to nitpick here, but it opens up one of the biggest problems that I have with this movie, which is the first time that Raleigh and Mako uh, do the drift together. Like, and she goes a little crazy and she starts loading up the plasma cannon inside Gypsy Danger and all this stuff. I'm like, can't they simulate the drift? Like, do they have to do their first drift <laughs> in the actual robot? Like, you think you'd do the first drift in, like, a room or something. Before we Before... put in a 200-ton mech assault yeah. vehicle. Yeah, that could just blow up dry everything. dry run on the ground. Or, you know, you think you would go through, like... Like, there's this whole thing about inherently knowing that you're Rift compatible. Like, maybe there should be a test or something that you can do. Yeah, because it appears to be based on pure attract, physical attraction. Mm Mm-hmm. I find you very sexy. Therefore, we can We can totally drift. I want to get up in that noggin. Hey, baby, looking (laughs) for somebody to drift with? We're going to drift. That is sad. That was my thing. She blows. She almost blows up the whole goddamn shattered dome. <laughs> but we also get the best scene of the movie, like the best oh. shot scene of the movie. In the we go great practical effect. Her in the cockpit, and they just kill mm-hmm. the lights, cue the snow. Yep. Yeah, and she steps forward, and she's on the street like that. Beautiful set work. 
great lighting, great yep. color. I her reaction, the kid, the kid playing scared crushes uh-huh. it. I think the kid's one of the best actors in the movie. Yeah, that whole scene is amazing. It's just and I, and I, I I guess that's fine. I mean, it it serves the scene. It gives us a really good scene. It gives us good visuals. It's hard for me to make the logical jump to say they let them do this. They do their first drift in the gypsy danger inside the shatter dome with no intention of them actually deploying it. Like, why do why do they have to be connected to the thing? There's just a lot of questions in my mind. Maybe do the first drift outside of it. You could still have that scene. You don't have that great. You don't have the drama of the plasma cannon, but you would still you'd still be able to have that scene and that flashback. Um, I don't know, but. And my issue isn't so much with that. It's afterward when Marshall, uh, you know, basically benches Mako and says, you're not going to be able to, you know, do this. And Charlie Hunnam goes up to him and says, you know, that's not why you want to ground her. And I'm like, she shouldn't be in the thing. She almost blew up everybody. Like, she almost blew up everyone. Maybe she's not cut out for the for the drift, dude. Um but uh, but alas, they have no choice basically because the monsters are coming. That so that, there's it's just stuff like that, you know. It's stuff where you're kind, Guillermo. You're just kind of forcing me to make some logical backflips that I don't really want to make, but I like this movie so much that I'm willing to make them. But I I kind of don't like that he made me work so much with it. That's the that's why this movie and mo and world building from Guillermo. Needs mm-hmm. to be spread out. He he's doing well in yeah. the sense that he keeps his movies trim. He tries to make sure to get it. He tries to keep it at that two hour mark. Yeah, pretty much all all consistently around at or around two hours. But it, he emotionally just advances too fast in a lot of cases, and it's hard as a viewer to track that. But if it's yeah, a fun that's... movie, I don't know that he concerns himself as much with that. Exactly. That's the thing about this. It's not. This isn't. You know, withering heights. We're we're actually trying to get monsters punching robots in the face. <laughs> as that's what we're fast trying to get as to. possible. Yeah, and honestly, it takes a little too much time. Maybe, maybe we could go a little, a little faster because we do get the original one. But for the for a lot of the movie, it's yes, it's robots punching monsters in the face. But the robots are getting their fucking asses kicked throughout most of the film. They're getting destroyed. Um, I am literally shocked that at some of their wins, because yeah. it two monsters shut down three Jaegers, but yeah. somehow Gypsy Danger manages to jump the one in the bay and beat him yeah. just in a straight fist fight, even though the tank Jaeger couldn't. And then, well, the other they, one they he beat pulls him out. A, a, they beat him in a fist fight, but they also unload the plasma cannon on him. Yeah, but that plasma cannon is as good as a punch because they have to put it up. To, it's not like they're sniping him halfway across mm-hmm. the Hong Kong Bay. They basically mm-hmm. give him a gut punch with a gun. <laughs> yeah, it still counts. I think it's got to be. It's a close range weapon. Yeah, it's so it's shotgun's longest. And then after being beat up. They go kill one that spits acid and flies, and yeah. they pull out a sword from who knows where. <laughs> I have a I have an answer for the sword though. That this is my answer for the sword is that they retrofitted it with the sword. 
that that Charlie Hunnam's character didn't know that the sword was there. That's how I explain that to myself. But how do you not immediately pull it out for the first monster? It's like, hey, here's the monster. Maybe they thought it wasn't going to be that good. <laughs> Maybe they had no idea. This is the first time they're going to use the sword. Guys, they're like, oh, we totally- didn't know the sword was going to be this good. But the sword <laughs> is the best one. Like, let's just make giant sword arms now from now on. All right. I want an uh, Animatrix-style series of shorts based yes. around Pacific Rim. And one I is do just too. the designer's... Of Gypsy Danger, Danger's renovation, going through uh-huh. all of the things that we, and a bunch of stuff we don't see. Be like, I'm going to put some grenade launchers on this thing. Like, yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. Wait, when when are they going to use that? <laughs> <laughs> they can't use it in yeah. a crowded area. It probably doesn't work well underwater. Maybe. What if we do missiles instead? No, all we got is grenades. Put the grenades in. <laughs> I I think that's yeah I think that's good. Dude, I would totally watch an Animatrix of this of a Pacific Pacific Rimatrix <laughs> or Anna Anna Pacific Rim Anna Pacific Rim Anna because Pacific Rimatrix doesn't make any sense <laughs> at all. Uh, speaking of things that don't make sense at all, since I put in my gripes out there. You're telling me Cherno Alpha isn't atomic? <laughs> You're telling me that the Russians, the first one the that they Mark build is one? not nuclear? No, it's diesel. Yeah. They they actively say it's a diesel engine. Though they say that there are diesel muscle strands making it fast, but it, apparently it's digital. I'm just saying, oh, dude, you tell me. That, yeah, that doesn't. Yeah, the Russians aren't going <laughs> to be making a nuclear uh nuclear powered robot i i'm sorry that was just a little that was a step too far you name it cherno for christ's sake <laughs> and it's not nuclear all right i think that's the end of my gripes is that did you have just like a checklist get them out now and now we've got 30 well, minutes I, to just fillet well, this, this movie <laughs> you <coughs> excuse me you do what you want need to do my friend um <laughs> But I mean, that's the thing about this movie. I kind of just watched it, and I usually have a ton of notes, uh, and I still have four pages of notes for this movie. So don't get me wrong; I'm, I'm noted out. But for the first like hour of this movie, up until the fight in Hong Kong Harbor, I was a little, uh, you know, I was watching it. I was entertained, but I didn't have a lot to write down until because I didn't just want to write down a bunch of gripes. Um, however, I I do think that it's interesting here. Uh, the thing about Gypsy Danger, and they, and this is this is like the Hellboy fight, okay? In Hellboy Two, there's the fight between him and Prince Duada, where he is drunk the first time that they fight, so he, he's not quite as good of a fighter. And it shows you later on that he actually has a chance fighting him when he's actually sober because he was like wasted because he was sad about Liz. This is good storytelling because it does this thing where okay, that leads to that, that explains that. This allows us to have his ass kicked in the in Act Two, but in Act Three he can actually kick the other guy's ass. It explains it. It's good. That happens in this movie. There's the there's the scene where Raleigh fights the Australian dude, and he like kicks his ass. Like he he basically beats him up a lot. It's 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 when the Australian dude um, insults Mako. And and Charlie just kind of goes to town on him and just starts beating the shit out of him. And he really does knock him out. Like, he does a great job of, of hurting him. And I feel like that kind of explains later on as to why the Aussies can't quite 
um, you know, defeat the kaijus, but Gypsy Danger can kind of go in there and you know is is really good because it shows that it, that Charlie's character is a superior fighter. So stuff like that is good. I, I'm not trying to shit on the movie. Those, those were my two main things: is Mako's drift, that whole scenario kind of threw me for a loop, and then also the Russians not having a nuclear a Jaeger was a little little uh, is a bridge too far, Guillermo. You know what I think does a lot of the heavy lifting though in this movie is the soundtrack. I think you set a lot aside, even in the because you're talking about the Charlie is the superior fighter, but if you talk about the complexity of the fights, most of the fights are the same: punch it in the face, punch it in the face. First, it's the plasma cannon. We get the plasma cannon the second time, and then we switch to the sword. But the fights, it's a lot of brawling and throwing, which is what you want from these. But those guitar riffs, for whatever reason, yeah. get me so... Je- the start opening of the movie, when they're just getting in the giant robot, and I still remember the first time going to the movie being like, oh yeah, oh that... Because it feels like the engines of the robot like warming up, <laughs> and it gets uh-huh. you kind of... And then when they're walking down the street, dragging a boat behind them, which doesn't make a structurally that boat. There's no way that boat survives that drag, but it's awesome when he smacks the kaiju upside the head with it, and the guitar is going the whole time. I think I have come to find because the one good scene of Batman versus Superman when Wonder Woman shows up, same thing, heavy guitar licks can really save an act can really add Drive emotion you. to a scene that is just punching people well i mean mad max fury road too. yeah Let's oh yeah take all the dialogue out and the music alone would carry that movie i think yeah yeah um yeah i, I love the music and also but it also has a really nice epic orchestral theme as well which I thought was really good. I mean, yeah, the the music in this movie is is really good. And one of the things that I really like to do when we're playing Dungeons and Dragons is I like to listen to movie soundtracks. And I feel like this one uh, could be a a good soundtrack to listen to during Dungeons and Dragons. Um, let's talk about uh, Idris Elba's character a little bit, uh, Stacker Pentecost, because <coughs> excuse me. Easily my favorite character in the movie. I, I think that he kills it from an acting standpoint. His character's very interesting. He was a Jaeger pilot. He's commanding this unit that nobody believes at anymore. Um, even though it's he knows and and I th- feel like everybody else deep down knows that this is really the only the, the last line of defense between the kaiju and uh, humanity because everybody knows that the walls aren't going to work after the breach in Sydney. And he just does a great job kind of going and and, and uh, kind of encapsulating this really nice, complex character. I thought I thought Idris Elba's character is great. Plus, he's got the great Independence Day speech. We're canceling the apocalypse. It's all really good. And he's got, like, the one thing of, of uh, Roman, or, uh, Roman Catholic uh, mysticism is his name, my friend. Stacker Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost is, of course... Uh, the reference in the Bible in the New Testament is uh, to a scene where uh, all these people start speaking in different languages. Uh, 
And he, you know, is the type of person who kind of unites everybody from all of these different cultures. He speaks multiple languages, and he's a uniter of basically the Pacific Rim of cultures against these kaiju. I thought it was very interesting uh, how his character developed and how he's going to die and how he's going to sacrifice himself at the end. It adds some real drama to the whole thing. I feel like as a fleshed out character, Stacker Pentecost is easily my favorite in this movie. The reveal on his character I think is well timed also the I the notion that you just think you see him as a he, I agree his fixed point line he nails that Idris Elba as an actor just fits it and he does not have a lot of lee when he snaps at uh at Raleigh for his insubordination I yeah well plus with Raleigh when he grabs, when Raleigh grabs him and flips him around, the look that Idris Elba gives him is so yeah, good. I he sunk like six inches in the couch. I know he's just this, the disbelief of like, did you seriously just touch me, dude? And for some like, of the lines, the one, don't ever touch me. Two, don't ever, don't ever touch me. Again. <laughs> there yeah. are a lot of actors I think that could have that would have come out really stupid, but. Yeah. He's just got that That's a, stare. I know. That's a Tarantino line, I feel like. <laughs> that's like a that's a that's a Beatrice and Kill Bill line. I would love to see Idris Elba with Quentin Tarantino. I know, right? It'd be cool. Um He yeah, and I just the kind of the reveal of his character, but let's talk about this because I feel like there are so many reveals in this movie that are so good the first time you see it, and I'm and I don't feel like they held up the second time. There are moments that you can look forward to the second time, but that reveal that like he raised Mako and that he was the person in the Jaeger who drove and, and destroyed the the kaiju, that was a really good reveal. Of course, the wings on the kaiju in, in Hong Kong Harbor, that was an awesome... I remember watching it in the theater when the wings pop out and he starts flying up. There was visible gas. There was audible gasps. <laughs> And visible gas. If you were looking at people instead of the movie in the theater when that happened, people were like, "Oh shit!" And then when the sword comes out, instead, like that sword was another big awesome reveal. And then, of course, the uh, the reveal of uh, of Hellboy. What's his name? Rod Perlman. <laughs> Rod Perlman's reveal was another big yeah. reveal in this movie. And then again, you get a second reveal at the very end. Yeah, post credits. <laughs> I like the post credits too. I think this is the second time he did a post credit scene. He did a post credit in uh, Hellboy One as well. I was like at Hellboy One post credit. That was like before Marvel post credits. Marvel stepped up their game. Civil War has the mid credit reveal yep. and then a final credit. Like at the after all of the credits, they have another that's, one. That's pretty common now for the big Marvel movies. That's what I'm saying. Marvel. Marvel did yeah. the post-credit scene. Everybody went, oh, yeah, let's do that. And now Marvel's like, all right, let's do two. Well, yeah, but but Hellboy came out before Iron Man. Who was, I guess, I'm trying to think now as far was. The, the post-credit Hellboy scene was just, uh, was just um, oh, God, what's the guy's name? The bald guy. Yeah, yeah. It was the. Was yeah. Ferris Bueller the first post-credit movie scene? oh there's no way to know there's no way to know <laughs> i'm just <laughs> i just think it's interesting how how uh and with Guillermo del toro it's just like a chance for one more joke at the end of the movie yeah. just make you laugh 
as you're walking out of the It cinema. does carry some weight, though. If you consider the symbolism of Mako's shoe to then have mm-hmm. Ron Perlman come out looking for his shoe. Oh, yes. I stole that from commentary as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. We'll get to Hellboy 2, or Pacific Rim 2 in a second, because I want to talk about that. Um, but I also want to talk about these fights because I think you're totally right about like the water and the interesting fights because the Hong Kong fight is so interesting and fun and amazing and it's something you've never seen on film before and it's just it's just really really well conceived and well carried out and the whole thing just escalates escalates the you know the goddamn kaiju sprouts wings and flies into the stratosphere and then a sword comes out of the Jaeger and slices it in half and it's just like so interesting and so fun and amazing and then you're like okay but that was act two how do we get another giant fight in act three that's even more interesting well you take it to the very bottom of the ocean which was just great and then you have the self-sacrifice you have the the moment of not so quiet bravery but kind of that brave moment that we've talked about in Guillermo del Toro's films that moment of bravery when uh you know Marshall Pentecost and the Aussie kid blow blow themselves up and then you have that cool scene where all of the air uh and I don't think that's how it works <laughs> I don't There's think no there way would to be, I don't I would love to ask a physicist if you light off a a nuclear bomb at the bottom of the ocean if you're going to get a giant air bubble. I feel like you... And then... The pressure is... where does the air come from? That's a good question. I don't know. We are not... So this is... Oh, I guess you're right. Maybe it's a vacuum. Maybe that's not air. Well, and that's why the water immediately comes back because it's the pressure pushing out because that Ah. pressure's got to go somewhere. So it's the pressure of all of the potential energy pushes the water out and then it's a vacuum so all the water comes rushing back in and that's why we get the... That makes sense. Yeah, that makes more sense. Because I was like, where's the air coming from? And then, but also, dude, that water would just destroy it. I mean, you're talking about... Well, if you think about the complexity of these robots, and they're yeah. like, all right, sealed tight. What? Yeah. Do you know how many moving parts are on this thing? Not to mention the immense pressure and weight of all of that water <laughs> coming back. Uh, like, if if you were smart... You would if you're inside the vacuum, you run and you jump into the water before it comes crashing down on top of you. But, <laughs> um anyway. That but that was so cool, man. It was super high stakes. Now you're underwater, now you're in the kaiju environment, and then and then the category five uh kaiju comes out for the first time ever. Um it was just really cool, man. I, I love how they up up the stakes uh for the end of the movie it puts you on the edge of your seat and really drives you toward that cinematic conclusion it's the type of thing you want in a freaking comic book it's not a comic book but a popcorn flick you know um i feel like the last two and you so you got to see civil war i didn't get to see it this weekend um i was gonna go tonight but i had a podcast to do uh sorry but (laughs) um but I feel like the last two Avengers movies, it's kind of like, well, here's a million aliens that you're definitely going to beat. And that's the climax. Uh, so I like kind of this unique climax. And especially like right before they go down here, the two scientists say, the plan, it's not going to work. Like all of a sudden that adds higher stakes to the thing as well because they're basically going to a su- more of a suicide mission than they even thought of at the beginning. Um just a really, really effective way to put together that 
that kind of comic book uh, popcorn movie. It's it does it does a good job of making the stakes known because for the Avengers movies, you're right. The first one threw an army at them, and then the second one, it's like, what if we threw? a bigger army at them. <laughs> yeah, and we're run by that, Disney, so the armies can't be made up of humans. Yep. Both faceless aliens and faceless robots. And faceless robots. Yeah. And and that's I think how Civil War is smart cuz they dial it way back. And yeah. It's the and even Batman versus Superman tries that a little bit. They have bigger problems, but mm-hmm. I really like that you're right. When the kaiju and it's a category five and you've seen what a struggle it is to fight just the category fours, you get a sense of what that means. And so, but the fights are never contrived. The victory is usually a hard fought one. Even for the category five, it's one, we have to hit it with a nuclear blast. And then while convenient that we can ride this sucker into the rift, a la yeah. Independence Day. Yeah. The bright light of the alien spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still fighting on the way down, but similar to Hellboy's drunk fight, you now believe that the playing field has at least been mildly leveled. Yeah. For that final giant uh, kaiju. And so when they have to like, uh, you know, and they keep revealing those moments with... um. You know, in the Alaska fight, you're talking about the kaiju sprouting wings, and we talked about the sword, And but there's the rocket punch. Yeah. There is when they eject the coolant onto yep. the arm of the kaiju, which is <laughs> super cool. Yeah. And then they're just stabbing, the, they're shiving the kaiju as they ride it into the rift mm-hmm. while blowing out the exhaust of their nuclear reactor on their chest. It's, at some point, you don't care about the physics of it you're just when they pull the acid sack out of the mouth of the kaiju (laughs) you can't help but just go yes (laughs) because it's awesome and they yank the emp thing off of its back yeah Yeah. we love it's like we just love violence as a culture it'll well and it's all this is like fun goofy it's goofy violence you know and it's not human on human violence it, and uh you know it's it's cartoon it's cartoony is it this is this is one of the most cartoony movies i think ever <laughs> it's, it might be one of the most cartoony action flicks uh in in a very long time um even the you know even the transformers movies i think that's what people didn't like about them as they went along, as they took themselves way too seriously. This movie cannot be accused of taking itself too seriously, I feel like. Uh, but I do want to talk... Uh, I want to get to the forums just a little bit. Um, George in New York says, I barely remember this movie. Went into the went into it, it with the wrong mindset. I went in looking for a solid story and some real fleshed-out characters. I need to rewatch the movie as a flat-out action movie. Which I feel like is the right idea. You know, coming out of even Hellboy and... Pan's Labyrinth. I feel like Hellboy Two and Pacific Rim fall a little bit flat, um, and it's that inconsistency that some that I think you'll find in the Guillermo del Toro movies. Uh, of uh, you know, sometimes the world, like you said, the world kind of overtakes the story, and that world building gets in the way of character development and all of the things that 
you know, make you really root and get root for characters and get engaged in the story. Um, and you have to kind of fall back on the big world that's been created for you. So, uh, that's what you got to do with this movie. It's just kind of going to be a big fun cartoony, uh, punch monsters in the face. And it's going to be done, uh, pretty well in that regard from a from a punch monsters in the face movie it's done spot on <laughs> they really it, punch those monsters in the face and it sets up nicely for another they can go they can bring them back through a different they can have the atlantic rim they could yeah come back through a different rift in the pacific mm-hmm. that i don't know that i would get tired Especially now that, because this came out which year? How far out are we now? From? I think it's 2013. 2013, so it's been three years. Yeah. You know, we've got, it'll be at least be four or five before they get to Pacific Rim. That's, you could spread it. If we can see a Star Wars every year, and yeah. we're seeing like the a Star Wars stories every other year, you can definitely make a giant robot <laughs> monster punch fest every five. Uh, I, yeah, totally, totally. Um Absolutely. I, I want to get to Davey Mack because he had a great list of what he liked and what he didn't like. Basically, the stuff that he liked is the stuff we liked as well. Um, you know, Specifically, what I like that he calls out here is the uh, attention to detail, um, which I think is really cool. The thing that he liked is that they, you know, the Jaegers and the Kaiju had both really good weight to them. So the fight seems big and strong and hard-hitting, which I thought was good. But he also had very similar... Uh, similar critiques to just about what everybody else said um, in terms of character and performance and the relationship between Raleigh and Mako and all of that. The thing that I think that he really, that I, that I like that he calls out here though, is he wants to see more of the Chinese and Russian characters. They get dispatched so quickly. There's not even time to really care. Uh, I get time in I get the two time in a two hour film is limited, but they were given cool introductions from Idris Elba, and then they barely interact with anyone before they are lost. I agree, man. I wanted to see the Crimson Typhoon actually kick some ass. It gets destroyed super fast. It really that head was a. I don't know how a previous kaiju didn't think to just go for it before now. That's my other thing about so this. many fights. Why the hell do the people have to be in the head? Seems like it's a little too easy to rip off. It like, does seem the most obvious target. Well, they should be in the butt, really. I feel like the butt is like <laughs> the most... It is. It's like the most secure space because nobody's getting punched in the butt. <laughs> you know? Nobody gets punched in the butt during a fight. That's where evolution is taking us. Eventually yes. we'll have brains in our ass. Brains right in the butt. <laughs> Best padding I think some of us might already have that. Um, Oh, snap. Anyway. um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I thought that this movie, like I said, there's things about it that are really inconsistent. You got to turn off half of your brain. This is the thing. This is like a neural... It's a neural handshake you have to make with Guillermo del Toro. (laughs) He's going to cover the logic. You cover the fun. So he's the right hemisphere. Yeah. He's the dominant side. (laughs) You've got to drift with him. Yes. In order to make this movie work. We didn't even get to the freaking scientist, but I love Charlie day in this movie. I like to picture Charlie day in this as the same Charlie from it's the same (laughs) character from it's always sunny. He just like left for the weekend. Cause I think he has a flowers for Algernon episode where Uh he gets super smart. And this uh-huh. is him. Just this is where he went in his smart time. 
Yeah, I mean, I love it. And we get like the Guillermo del Toroism of the stuff in jars and all of that jazz. It's really good. Uh, I just, I wasn't a big fan of the other scientist because the, frankly, the two guys, these two guys, I mean, I guess the other scientist might've been a mathematician and Charlie Day's a biologist. I think that's kind of the, that's what they're hinting at. Yeah. At least the fact that their theories are geared individually. But, But these guys, like they need to have a little more observational skills as scientists, like we, at some point you got to get out of your notebook and be like, well, that's not what my notebook says. Well, yeah, but that's exactly what's happening in front of you. Maybe that, maybe you should use that as a, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm getting out of my neural handshake with Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're charging the cannon yeah. and your TVs in the, in the sights. <laughs> All right. So what do you think here? What do you think uh, Pacific Rim 2 should be about? You think it should be Atlantic I- Rim? I think it's going to turn into... So, Guillermo del Toro is going to just morph his Mountains of Madness script uh-huh. into Pacific Rim 2. So, it's going to be even more Lovecraftian. Uh, somebody will find an ancient civilization in the Antarctic on mm. an expedition, and it'll be the second rift. And so, now they'll be coming out of the Antarctic. Well, I think that... I like that. I like the Antarctic, but I also think that it's interesting because this movie does have a pseudo environmental message in that in raising the CO2 levels in the atmosphere, we terraform the planet for the monsters. What a throwaway line. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that environmental message that could also be applied to Pacific Rim two. If we go, if instead of the South pole, they come out of the North pole. And the melting ice caps in the North Pole are actually caused by the kaiju or something along those lines. Or I don't know. When they melt, it opens the the rift is was sealed by the yeah. ice. Right there, you go. Great well, job, and it world. makes a lot more sense too because if they if they come out of the North Pole, then they can attack every continent. If you're Europe or Africa, you're sitting pretty with the kaiju. Who gives a shit about these guys? You know, there's a Pacific Rim's problem. Um, like London isn't deploying a Jaeger. I don't think I haven't checked the full wiki yet, but, but you um, will. <laughs> yeah, I will. Oh yes, I will. This is the sort of thing that you, you crawl in the bed to go to sleep and then it's midnight and you're <laughs> yeah. flipping through the wiki. Uh, I mean, I would love to see the French Jaeger, uh, the, the Ivory Coast Jaeger, the Brazilian Jaeger, Capoeira Jaeger. I'm I'm <laughs> into just doing spin kicks. Yeah, totally, there. dude. Or the the Canary Islands Jaeger, the Icelandic. Oh, come on, the Scandinavian Jaegers would be fo- so cool. The Viking Jaegers. <laughs> um, so many Jaegers, so little time. That's what that's what it, the tagline should be. Atlant- Pacific Rim Two, Atlantic Rim. So many Jaegers, so little time. What if there was like an Atlantis tie-in? Okay, that's a bridge too far. I mean, the dinosaur tie-in was a bridge too far. (laughs) They they tried it with the dinosaurs. For millions of years, they tried it. (laughs) For millions of years, they tried it with the dinosaurs. Because guess what, guys? The dinosaurs were on for millions of years. Uh, They tried it with... For, with the dinosaurs, but then you know they just had to give up because the atmosphere wasn't good enough for the dinos. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. Uh, 
the dinosaurs was a little bridge too far. The the fact that the radio transmitters worked in the other dimension was a little bridge too far. Yeah, they're still talking. Yeah. Wow, they that technology carries right over. Carries right in through there. Little known fact, radio waves are extra dimensional. Yeah. <laughs> and those the makers on the other side of the rift Big fan of podcasts. Big fan of podcasts. Because we radio broadcast these. I don't know where I was going with that. Well, I'm sure that they're going into some neural net that'll be, you know, projected into a DNA, uh, you know, CPU in the future. And some distant alien race will be listening to this podcast and they'll be like, I got to check out that movie. Um, yeah, that's the thing about dinosaurs. So, like, dinosaurs, you know, they died 65 million years ago. They were around, they were on the planet for four times that long. <laughs> I mean, almost four times that long. And by almost four times, I mean three times as long. Because I could do great math. Between 230 <laughs> and 65 million years ago, dinosaurs roamed the Earth. So, they were really trying for a long time. <laughs> They really gave it the old college try to colonize the Earth. And then uh, they just had to wait for humans to evolve and terraform it for them. So, like I said, turn off your brain, turn on your HDTV, turn on your surround sound, drink a couple beers, and Pacific Rim (laughs) will Pacific Rim your brain. Punch some pillows, pretend they're kaiju, pretend you're a Jaeger. Yep. And Pacific Rim 2. On Guillermo del Toro's long list of movies that who knows if they'll see the light of day. Well, uh, Pacific Rim Two, as far as I know, it's in production. He's going to be, but he's not going to be directing it. I think that they have actually selected a director for Pacific Rim Two, which I'm curious to see how that. I this will be kind of the first solid somebody playing in Guillermo del Toro's universe, and I'd like to see how that goes. Mm, yeah, I know that's what I'm saying. Like this is a world that Guillermo del Toro built from the ground up. It, unlike Hellboy, unlike Blade, uh, so we the only other things that we have to reference it are, uh, you know, um, uh, Pan's Labyrinth and Mimic and The Devil's Backbone. I think it'll be cool to see somebody else play in that sandbox. That'll be neat. All right, well, that's the show, buddies. That's the show for this week. We got one more movie in our Guillermo del Toro marathon. It is Crimson Peak. We will be talking about it next week. Get in touch with us on the forums, forums.baldmove.com, or send us an email, directpodcast at gmail.com. And until next week, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.